You're listening to the Hillside Pulpit, a ministry of Hillside Baptist Church. This is Pastor Chad Henley, and I want to thank you for allowing the Hillside Pulpit to be part of your spiritual journey. If this podcast has blessed you in any way, would you consider leaving a five-star review on your podcasting app? That will help us get the word out to others. And we invite you to join us to worship the King at the Hill. You know, this, the, throughout this uh, year, or this, uh, well, and more than this year, uh, but we've been going through the book of Acts for a long time now, and uh, we've been talking about missions, and missions very much is what we're, t- what we're talking about kind of with this position. We're, we're, we're uh, as, a, as a church, we're thinking about, okay, how can we reach the next generation? How can we reach lost people? How can we reach this world that is around us? Um, and it's not always going to be easy. In fact, it can be very challenging, and, and, um, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about today as we talk about Christian missions in a pagan world from Acts chapter 14. And so let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll just we'll dive in right here. Uh, King Jesus, Lord, we're looking to you as a, as a church family this morning. I thank you for all these brothers and sisters and friends that you've brought here today. And so, Lord, I, I believe that there, there are no accidents, and so you have something you want to say to us. And Lord, I've just been so grateful and humbled to think about um, where, you've, where, where you've taken us in this past year. And Lord, as we look at 2024, God, and, and as we are going for more in 2024, God, I'm just so hopeful about, about what you have. And so, Lord, we don't. But at the end of the day, Lord, the, uh, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so we're asking for your direction. Lord, we're asking for your leadership. We're asking for a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit to know what is best to do, but then the courage to be able to do that. And even today, God, as we talk about uh, Christian missions in a pagan world, I pray that you would help us to see how this applies to our lives, Lord, as we think about Paul and the things that he experienced, Lord, that, that we are witnesses for you, God, in, in this time, in this place, in this community, to bear witness uh, to the name that other people may share in the joy that we have in Christ. So help us be courageous Help us be faithful and grant us to be fruitful, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 14. And um, I shared a little bit about John Piper and his very famous book on missions last time um, called Let the Nations Be Glad. But in October 27 of 2012, Pastor John preached a sermon um, that talked about some of the same themes that ended up in his book. And from that sermon, and I have the quote up here, this is what he said. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It is for all. And that's why we go. Because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus, and we want all the families of the earth included. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you, Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven. Seeking the worship of the nations is fueled by the joy of our own worship. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You can't proclaim what you don't prize. Worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. And so that's what drives us, right? The joy, the joy that we have experienced in Christ is the joy that we want to give other people. Our mission as a church is what? Say it with me. Love God 
Love people. Come on, guys. Say it with me. Love God, love people, and make disciples. That's our mission as a church, to love God, to love people, and to make disciples. And if you think about it, that's like a, that's like a holy trinity of mission, right? Because if we love God, we enjoy Him, we delight in Him, we delight in what we love, right? We love God, we cherish Him, we, he, he, gives us, he, he gives us life and meaning and joy and hope and purpose and all that we, we do and all that we are, right? And then we love people. Love people means we want the eternal best for other people. We want them to know the joy and the happiness that can only be found in Christ. So making disciples then is the natural and necessary outflow of our love for God and our love for people. We, love, we make disciples because we love God. Because he is worthy of the praise of all peoples. We make disciples because we love people. Because we know maybe what they have yet to figure out, and that is that true happiness and lasting joy is only found in God and through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so those two loves, those two great loves are married in, our, in the one action that we take of making disciples for the sake of the name. That begins here into the ends of the earth. And so, and so today what we're going to be talking about is what, what kind of things we face as we, um, as we do Christian missions in a pagan world. We have the map that we've been showing um, over and over of, the, of Paul's first missionary journey. And so we, we just talked about how they've, they've gone all the way up to the top left there to Pisidian Antioch, okay? And, they, and he, gets, he gets run off from Antioch and Iconium, okay? And he eventually, um, he eventually makes his way to Lystra, all right, and so in this account that we're about to read, they get mistaken for Greek gods, okay, and, uh, and uh, Paul ends up getting stoned and all kinds of crazy stuff happens, okay? But the point is, is that they, Paul and Barnabas are going because there's only one God, but not everybody knows that. Not everybody sees that. And so they, they go on this mission because missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions isn't always easy but it's the call of joy and it's the call of love for God and for neighbor that is, that is upon us, that fuels us and, and calls us to go to do missions in a pagan world. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Acts chapter 14. If you're able and willing, let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But when Jews from Antioch and Iconium came, and having persecuted the crowd, persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. 
supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to, to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. And so that last part there, we see that after they make their way to Lyconium, uh, to, to Lystra and Derby, they actually backtrack with that blue line all the way back to Syrian Antioch. Okay, so uh, you may be seated. That's God's Word. That's what we're going to be talking about today. All right, so we're going to be looking at this passage under four headings this morning. Number one, spiritual confusion in a pagan world. Number two, essential gospel in a pagan world. Number three, necessary suffering in a pagan world. And then number four, disciple-making in a pagan world. Okay, first, we're going to talk about spiritual confusion in a pagan world world. So, so after they leave uh, Iconium and Lystra, or, or Icon, uh, Antioch, and Lystra, uh, Antioch and Iconium, they go to Lystra, okay? And there they see a man who has been lame from birth. And if you remember, this has lots of similarities to that account where Peter healed the lame man outside the beautiful gate of the temple earlier in the book of Acts. But Paul is apparently preaching, and, and it seems that likely that this man has been hearing Paul preach from the place where he sits there and begs, because as a, as a lame person, they have no other way to try to provide for themselves other than begging. And so he, but he's, he's sitting there, and he's listening to Paul preaching, and, um, and uh, you know, most likely what's happening here is he, he, understood and he, he, he understands and he believes. And so Paul sees this, and Paul works this, this miracle instantaneously on the spot, much like Peter did, where he commands him, this man, to stand upright on his feet. And now again, it says there that this man has been lame from, from birth, from birth, right? So he literally has never stood on his feet in his entire life, never on his, his entire life. And just Paul, in the power of the Holy Spirit and through the uh, authority of Christ, commands him to stand up, and God just instantaneously heals the man on the spot. And this great miracle is worked and, what is the, and, what's, and, and what's the goal, right? The goal in Acts, quite consistently, is that miracles are to, to bear witness to the, the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel, right? But at the same time, people have to connect that. People have to connect the healing, the healing power of, of uh, Jesus and through his apostles. They have to connect that with the truth of the gospel that the apostles are proclaiming, right? They're supposed to connect the two and see that Jesus is alive because he's still healing people today through the power of his apostles, all right? So they're supposed to make that connection. But the problem that happens in Lystra is that they don't make the right connection, right? Instead of connecting the healing power with Jesus, they assume, the, 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 the Lyconians assume, uh, they, they connect that healing power with the gods that they know about, not the one true God in Jesus Christ, but the gods that they know about, the, God, the, the Greek gods, God's Zeus and Hermes. So if you remember from your 
uh, world lit class, right? They, the Greeks really did, the Greek and Romans really did worship these Greek gods. And so um, they, they thought that Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes, okay? And, that's, and from, from a historical perspective, it's, it's interesting and, and, it's some ev- and more evidence for the truth of the book of Acts is that we actually have a recorded myth that, that locates from the Lyconian region uh, at, at this time period, okay? Where, and the way that this myth goes is that one day, Paul, uh, I mean, Zeus, Zeus and Hermes visit the region of Lyconia, uh, and they, they visit all these people looking for hospitality, and nobody shows them hospitality except this elderly couple. And as a result of that, they send a flood to basically kill everybody, but they reward this elderly couple that showed them hospitality by turning their poor little house into a, an extravagant uh, temple, okay, that they got to live in. Okay, so almost certainly what's going on here is that the Lyconians are aware of this myth. They think Paul and Hermes have showed back up. They don't want to make the same mistake that the other people made, and so they're going all out, right, and they're starting this parade, and they're going to offer great sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, who they now think are Zeus and Hermes. But the point that I want to bring out here is, the, is to just note the spiritual confusion that there is in a pagan world. They didn't make the proper connection between the healing in Jesus' name with the, with the uniqueness of Jesus as the Son of God, as Son of the one true God and Savior of the world. And so, there's lots, and so, of course, Paul was preaching and he was trying to explain that, but the thing is, is there's lots of spiritual confusion in the world. And so we live in a, we live in a pagan world, okay? That means that, that means that there's lots of spiritual confusion out there. People, people don't know what to believe, right? I mean, very few people in the world are actually atheists. Very few are like explicit atheists. Most people would say they're spiritual in some way or they believe in some kind of God or some kind of spiritual realm outside of this earth. Most people are spiritual, right? But the thing is, is most people don't, they don't know what to believe and they're just so confused and sometimes, and sometimes in our confusion, you know, like we'll, we'll, we, we believe contradictory things and things that just don't make sense. But, but what is it? It's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity to speak the truth of Jesus into the confusion of people's lives. We get to speak Jesus into people who are confused about the truth, right? Because what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I'm the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What does everybody want to know today? They want to know what's, what's the way that I should be living my life. They want to know what the truth is. They want to know what life is all about. Well, what did Jesus say? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And we have the opportunity to give people what they're craving but don't even realize. We get to speak truth into the spiritual confusion um, of the pagan world. And that's the privilege of missions in a pagan world. And that's our mission as a church, as we love God, love people, and make disciples. So number one, spiritual confusion in a pagan world. Number two, essential gospel in a pagan world. Essential gospel in a pagan world. If you look back there in verses 15 and 17, okay, what, what they're trying to correct, right, the Lyconians' false assumptions, right? And they're saying, hey, look, guys, we're nothing special. We're actually human beings just like you, all right? But we've come to bring you good news, and what's that good news, right? That they actually have the opportunity now to turn from vain things or worthless things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and sea and all that is in them. So what they're doing there is they're undercutting the Lyconian idolatry, right? In those ancient times, what did, what did they do? Well, they literally worshipped idols, right? They had statues that they worshipped, right? 
and, 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 but a stone or a wood or a golden statue is not alive. It's, it's not live, right? So what is they're saying? They're saying, hey, we worship the living God, the God who lives, the God who's alive. He's not a stone. He's not a statue. He's not gold. He's alive. We worship the living God, and in fact, he's the one who made all these things. He's the one who made that stone. He's the one who made you. He's the one who made me. All right, we worship the living God, right? And, and notice what he says there in verse 16. In the past, all right, God let everybody kind of go their own way, right? In the past time frame, in the past history, right, God revealed himself really exclusively to Jews, and, he, and just the other nations, he just kind of let go their own way. But he's saying now that Christ has come, God's plan for the world has actually changed because his plan for the world is to bring salvation not just to one people group, but to all nations through the proclamation of his gospel. And so now the time of ignorance is over, right? He allowed people in the past to walk their own ways, but now that time, that time is no more. Now we proclaim the gospel so that all people may know the truth about the one true God uh, and love and serve him. And then in verse 17, he talks about the witness, right? That God has bore witness to them, he says, by doing good to them, by giving them rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. In other words, in other words, even at that time period, right, God has shown good to people, right? Even people who don't acknowledge God, even people who have nothing, who want nothing to do with God, right? What has he done? In many multitudes and multitudes of cases, he's given them food to eat. He's given them families and relationships and people that love them. He's He's given them life and breath and everything. So God, by his goodness, has revealed himself to, to all people um, in a certain way. And so what you'll notice from this gospel that is being preached here, if you go back and compare what Paul and Barnabas say here to what they say uh, back at Antioch, okay? Remember a few weeks ago I preached a sermon called um, The Gospel According to Paul. But if you go back and look what he says there, what is he doing? He quotes a lot of scripture. He quotes a lot of Bible and says, Jesus fulfilled this and Jesus fulfilled that, okay? But notice that it's something of a different message here. Well, what's the difference? Did, you know, did the gospel change? Well, no, the gospel didn't change. He's just speaking to a different audience, right? When, when he was in the synagogue in, uh, in Antioch, right? Well, guess who's sitting there? Jews and Jewish converts. Who, guess what? And, and what do Jews and Jewish converts know? They know the Old Testament. So it makes sense to argue about God from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, right? But when you're talking to people who've never read the Bible in their entire life, maybe never even went to church in their entire life, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to quote scripture that they've never even heard of, right? And so what's the point? The point is that it's a missionary principle called contextualization, right? We have to learn to understand people so we can share Christ with them in an understandable way, right? You see, nowadays, you know, we just want to kind of, sometimes we, you know, Back in the day, you know, you could walk up to someone and say, do you know Jesus? Which I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that, but you could do that. Do you know Jesus? Well, guess what? Most people would know who you're talking about. But I'm telling you, folks, people my age and younger, most of them don't go to church. Lots of them have never even stepped foot in the church. And it's not their fault, right? They, they didn't go. Their parents didn't take them, whatever. We can point the finger at whoever we want. But the point is, is that if you talk about the blood of Jesus, they might have no idea what you're talking about. Right? And so we have to, so we, we, we just have to understand that we live in a post Christian America. It's a post Christian America. All right? We, it, it's not, this, we are no longer Paul preaching in a synagogue. We're Paul preaching to 
the people out in the street who have all these other things that they worship, all right? Like in Lystra, right? We've moved, the, the context has changed, so the way we proclaim, not what we proclaim, but the way we proclaim it needs to change so that what? So that it can be understandable. Notice what Paul and Barnabas do is they have to, instead of just saying, you know, believe in Jesus, they have to go all the way back to the beginning, to creation, for it to make sense, right? You have to, and, and I believe that's the gospel that we have to preach today. We have to go all the way back to creation. Before, we got we to set the background before Jesus even begins to make sense. We got to go all the way back to creation and say, hey, look, you were made by the one true God. That's why you exist. And because you exist, you, because he made you, then he gives you life, breath, and everything. And he, and he knows what you were made for, and he knows what he made you for, and he knows where your greatest joy and happiness is, and, and he knows how to give that to you. But when you seek it in other places, that's when you lose it. And, then, and we've all rebelled against our creator to go our own way. And then you can start building up to Jesus and the need for Christ and all that to make sense. But nowadays, we have to back up. we got to back up and, and start from the beginning to, make, to, to understand people so she can, we can share Christ with them in an understandable way. So that's number two, the essential gospel in the pagan world. So when we're talking with people, I would encourage you, right, one of the most important things to do when you're talking with people before you get, before you just, you know, just unload on them, which, I mean, I believe in sharing the gospel. Don't get me wrong. But it's important, I think, to ask a lot of questions because you need to understand the way they're thinking about things and the way they conceive of things. And then you can tailor your response to them in a way that's going to be understandable. But if you don't know what they're thinking, if you don't know what they believe, it's going to be really, you know, you, you could end up talking past somebody and, and miss your opportunity to, to, to explain Christ in an understandable way. So that's number two, essential gospel in a pagan world. Next, number three, necessary suffering in a pagan world. Necessary suffering in a pagan world. So with these words, all right, they rush out in the crowd and they start explaining things. But the crowd is so worked up because crowds lose their minds, all right? Crowds of people just lose their minds, all right? They're so worked up that uh, they, they are barely able to stop them from sacrificing to them as gods, all right? And apparently, now Luke doesn't give us all the details, but apparently Paul and Barnabas stayed in Lystra for a, a, a certain uh, time, a decent amount of time. And we know that because a little bit later when Paul is stoned, it says that the disciples come to him. Disciples, plural, which means Paul and Barnabas were at least there long enough to, to make uh, a decent number of converts there in Lystra, all right? So they're there for a certain time period, but eventually what happens is that the Jewish people from Antioch and Iconium eventually make their way to Lystra, and of course they've done been kicked out of Antioch and Iconium, all right, and the Jews are able to show up, and they stir up the crowd and somehow convince them one way or another that, um, they're pub- that Paul and Barnabas are public enemies, and um, they're able to persuade the people to literally stone Paul. So Paul is, is, is stoned, you know, stoning is a, is a method of execution where they throw rocks at you till you die. It's not very pleasant, okay, but Paul is stoned outside the city of Lystra, okay, um, and then, uh, but then he he doesn't die. All right? He gets back up and goes back into the city. And so, so this points us, this shows us how fickle people are, all right, that the people who at one time wanted to sacrifice to them as gods, you know, a little bit later are stoning in the death, all right? But what I want us to notice here is that 
when he gets stoned but then gets back up, I mean, the kind of the implied principle there is that God preserved him, God protected him, God upheld him in that persecution, right? He gets back up, all right, and what does he do? What does Paul do when he gets back up? He walks right back into the city, right back into the city that stoned him. Now, of course, he can take a hint, and they leave the next day, but the point is, is that he, he's, he's not scared. He, he's going to continue to do what God has called him to do. And in fact, there, as he, as, he, as, he treks back, as he treks back around to strengthen the churches, one of the major important things that he will tell them, and a very important verse, I believe, for us to remember, is he says, he tells the disciples, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When it says must enter, it means the word literally means it is necessary. All right? It is necessary. Do you want to enter the kingdom of God? Yes, I'll take that as a yes, okay? Yes, you want to enter the kingdom of God. How do you get to the kingdom of God? Through tribulation. It's the only way. There is no other way. The only way to get to the kingdom of God, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And, you know, as the book of Acts just reiterates that over and over, we have to reiterate that to ourselves, right? I think, uh, we were just, I was just talking about this with somebody. Like, somehow along the way, with our modern world, with our modern comforts, somehow along the way, we started to believe that God owes us an easy life. But it's just not true. And think about this. The greatest person who ever lived, the only person, the only sinless person who ever lived, who didn't deserve to suffer, guess what? He suffered. He suffered. Jesus suffered. He was lied about. He was slandered. He was hated. He was opposed. He was eventually crucified. For what? For doing exactly what God wanted him to do. So if we do exactly what God wants us to do, it emphatically does not mean everyone's always going to like us. And, life is, and it emphatically doesn't mean that life is always going to be easy. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So what's the point? The point is, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your suffering, right? Lots of people, when they face challenges in life, they use that as it becomes an excuse to turn away from God. But that misses the whole point, right? When Jesus suffered, he understood that was exactly the point of God in his life. He had to suffer. For what? For the eternal good of the world. And, and it is our suffering too. When we suffer like Jesus, we're suffering with Jesus. How can we say that we're a Christian, that we follow Jesus Christ, when Christ suffered? If we're going to be like Christ, we have to suffer like Christ, right? And it'd be really, it's really hard for us to say, you know, Jesus, thank you so much for suffering for me, but I'm not going to suffer for you. It just doesn't work, right? That doesn't work, right? And so to follow Jesus, we, 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 don't, just, we, don't, dis, we don't despise the suffering. We embrace the suffering because it makes us like Jesus. And, and Paul said this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 and following. It says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, what's he saying? This very famous verse, this very important verse, right? For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I talked about this in Sunday school today. The rich young ruler, right? He was a good fella, good old boy, give you the shirt off his back. He kept all of God's commands, right? Everybody knows the rich young ruler, good old fella, just one problem. He loved his money more than he loved Jesus. And when the choice came to lose his position, his money, his wealth to follow Jesus, he walked away. The question for us is this, do we really believe that if God doesn't always demand this of all people, but sometimes he does, and if the push came to shove and the question got forced on our life, if I had to suffer the loss of everything, would it be worth it for Jesus? Would it be worth it? That's the question we have to know in our hearts. That's the answer we have to have, we have to hold in our hearts. Man, Jesus, if I had to lose it all for you, it'd be worth it. It'd be worth it. Because what? Because there's necessary suffering to do missions in a pagan world. And Paul knew that more than anybody. And we need to know that too. So number three, necessary suffering in a pagan world. Finally, number four. Disciple-making in a pagan world. Disciple-making in a pagan world, right? Again, we say that our mission is to love God, love people, and make disciples. You know, we just didn't, you know, pull that out of thin air, right? It comes from the great commandments and the great commission. The great commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then the great commission is found in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So this is the mission, the commission from Jesus, right, to what? To make disciples of all nations, not just some nations, of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey Jesus, right? So that's the job, that's the mission. That's what it looks like. And so it's important for us to ask as a church, right, if this is our mission as a church, what does that look like, right? How is that embraced, right? Because it, it definitely involves preaching the gospel, but it, means, but it also means more than that too, right? I mean, we, we rejoice when somebody is converted to Christ, and that's massively, hugely important for the church and for that individual, right? But when a person gets converted, you know, they also need, as Jesus said, to be taught all that Jesus commanded, right? We must grow in our Christ-likeness and our obedience to Christ, and, and so we don't want to, you know, we don't want to remain... a a baby Christian our whole lives, and we don't want our fellow church members to remain baby Christians our whole lives. We're to strengthen one another and disciple one another and teach one another. And so we see four things from our text this morning as we, on this last point that we're just going to walk through quickly about what disciple-making looked like for Paul in a pagan world. Number one there is it says that uh, he went about strengthening the churches. He went about strengthening the churches, okay? Churches need to be strengthened, all right? We need to be strengthened. That most likely means that as he went back through on his return trip, right, turn trip back through everywhere he had just visited before he, they go all the way back to Antioch, he strengthened the churches by teaching them uh, 
deeper in Christian doctrine and encouraging them in the teachings of Christ, right? So that's part of what it is, is to, as a church, right? We don't want to be a baby church our whole life. We want to strengthen. We want to be strengthened. We want to grow. We want to grow in our knowledge of the Scripture. That's why I beg you to read your Bible so that you can grow in the knowledge of your Scripture because by knowledge of Scripture, we gain knowledge of God, right? And we grow in our convictions and we grow in our love and we grow in our obedience so that we can be strong, right? Because, because we need that internal strength because there's an enemy out there trying to attack us and there's forces out there that are against us and they're there's, there's, there, there's an enemy out there that's trying to lure people away. So we need to be strong and firm in what we believe. So there's a strengthening of churches uh, that needs to take place. And then number two thing, thing it says that he does is that he went about encouraging believers. He went about encouraging believers uh, to remain true to the faith, right? We all need encouragement, right? We all go through hard times. We need encouragement to remain true to the faith, right? We must be aware of the, the Jesus' teaching, right? You remember Jesus' teaching about the four different kinds of soil, right? Well, one of the soils, if you remember, was called the shallow soil, right? And you remember the shallow soil, right? It says that the seed of the word falls on that heart and it sprouts up quickly, okay? But what happens, right? It's not, it's the, sh- the soil is shallow, so it's not able to build deep roots. So what happens? He says the sun comes up and it gets hot, and, it, and it, it withers that plant and kills it. So what's the point? The point is, is that if we, don't, if, we're not, if we don't build deep roots in our faith, right, then when hard times come in our life, we're going to shrivel up. So the part of it is to build, so part of discipleship, right, is helping one another, encouraging one another so that our roots can grow deep, so that our roots can grow deep, so that we're not easily shaken or blown away or withered up. So that's a, a part of disciple-making, all right? The third thing that Paul does uh, in, his, in, his church, in his missionary labors is he establishes leadership. It says that they appointed elders in every church, verse 23, all right? So the point there is that churches need leaders, just like every organization, all right? And leader, for Paul, elders are important because they serve at least two, um, at least two very important tasks, and those tasks or the shepherding of the, of the flock, all right? So Jesus is the great shepherd. He's the good shepherd, all right? And elders, pastors, overseers are the under-shepherds, right? All right? Jesus has sheep, and so he entrusts uh, some of his shepherding duties to men, pa- elders, pastors, overseers, to do what? To make sure that all his sheep make it to the end safely, right? So that's part of the shepherd's job, the elder's job, right? And then the second important job of the pastor, elder, overseer is, a, is he, he viewed them as the guardians of the truth, all right? That there has to be some who, who are taught and trained in the truth and are willing to stand courageously for the truth when it is challenged, all right? And so every church needs this, right? This is why we as a church <clears throat> are, you know, we're, we're an elder-led church, and part of that is just recognizing the need of godly, mature Christian leadership and men within the church body, right? Um, in the past... Okay, it, you know, lots of, lots of times, I mean, I'm just not going to say that. I'm just not going to say it. All right, the point is, is that in our, in our church, what do we want to create? We want to create a place, right, where we have godly, holy, mature, wise, courageous, scriptural, scripturally knowledgeable men in our church that can lead us, that can guide us, that can correct us, right? Because without good leadership, that's why Paul did it, right? Without good leadership, the church is at great risk. And that's why it's important, 
who's in the leadership of your church, right? If you've ever been at work and you had a really bad boss, you know exactly what I'm talking about, all right? So that's what we're talking about is the importance of good leadership within the church. And then the final thing he talks about is trusting the Lord, right? In verse 26 there, it says the final thing they did is they committed them to the Lord. So after Paul did all this work, all right, and he preached the gospel and he appointed elders, okay, and he encouraged them, all right, there's only one thing that he had left to do, and, all, and, and that was in, he committed them to the Lord. You see, at the end of the day, we can only do so much, you know. You know, when we're, when we're trying to reach out to somebody, you know, at the end of the day, we're doing everything we can to reach them for Christ, but at the end of the day, you can't change their heart, only God can. You know, at the end of the day, as a pastor, right, I, I'm going to try to do, by God's grace, God help me, everything I can to help you grow and mature in Christ, but at the end of the day, I have to leave you to the Lord because I can't change your heart. Only God can change your heart. And so at the end of the day, but here's the thing. Here's the thing about Paul, though, when he's entrusting these churches to the Lord. That's just not just like a I hope it works out kind of thing. Paul really believes when he's entrusting them to the Lord, he's like, he's really telling them. He's, he's entrusting them, right? He's like, look, look, guys, I got, you know, I got to go. God's calling me to other ministries. God's calling me to other things. I can't stay here forever as your pastor, right? They, they have, to learn, they have to, learn to learn to get on as a church without the Apostle Paul, which I'm sure was a hard thing to do. But guess what? Here's the, here's the great thing. Here's the wonderful thing. Here's the encouraging things. I mean, they're in God's hands. They're in Jesus' hands. And Jesus loves his people. And Jesus loves his church. And so Jesus has got them. And he can rest in that and trust in that as he goes about his mission. And with this scripture, we'll close in John 10. This is what Jesus said. He said, my, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So maybe somebody needed to hear that this morning. Maybe Maybe you feel like you're on the precipice, you know, of being pulled away from God. And God just wanted to tell you this morning, hey, I got you. I got you. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. I got you. That situation can't take you out of my hand. That thing going on in your life, that, that, that hard thing that you, you might have to go through right now, look, I got you. The sheep know my voice, and they follow me. No one can snatch them out of God's hand. So as we close this morning, I just extend this invitation. We're talking about Christian missions in, in, in a pagan world. You know, but here's the thing. Look, God has his sheep, as we just read about. God has his sheep, and his sheep hear his voice. So maybe there's somebody in this room today. Maybe there's somebody watching online this morning. And maybe for the first time in your life, maybe you've heard you heard the shepherd's voice in a way that you haven't before. And you feel that, you feel his calling on your heart and you're drawn to him. I pray that that, I pray that, that would happen. And so my encouragement to you today is to say, hey, heed that voice. If Jesus is calling you, heed that call. Come to him. Let him be your shepherd. Let him be your guide. You don't have to be a wandering sheep out there any, any longer with no protection. Remember that, that famous psalm, Psalm 23? His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Look, Jesus, Jesus has got a staff in hand. He's got this. You just got to trust and follow him.
If that call is on your life today, I pray that you'd obey. Turn to Jesus. Trust in him. Follow him. Turn from your sin. Trust in him. And he'll lead you to the green pastures of his grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, thank you so much for today. Thank you that you are the good shepherd, Lord, and that you, you got us, Lord. And so at the end of the day, Lord, our hope and our trust is in you. And as we think about Christian missions in the pagan world, Lord, we think about those friends, those neighbors, God, those, those family members, Lord, the, the faces that we see out and about every day, Lord, that, um, you know, we don't know them, Lord, but we could get to know them. And, Lord, they might, they, they might most desperately, we don't even know how much they want hope or healing or help or grace or strength, and we have it, and we can give it to them. God, so open our eyes, God, to what's around us. God, strengthen us that we may be strong, God, to stand against the challenges that the world, flesh, and the devil want to throw at us. God, let us not grow weary, Lord, but let us be encouraged and strengthened, God, in who we are in you and your love for us, that we might continue, God, to do the work that you have called us to do, whatever tribulation you must call us to endure. And finally, God, I pray, Lord, that if there's someone that needs the eternal hope of Christ, Lord, I pray that you would just call them this morning. God, draw them to you by your power that they may look to you in trust and faith and love and obedience. And it's in Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen.